You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my lovely other half, Dr. Jess. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm happy, sun is shining, ready to talk about a rather serious topic. Very serious. Uh, sexual shame and childhood sexual abuse and just the general topic of relinquishing sexual shame. And as usual, I'll put you on the spot. Would you say you were raised with shame around sexuality? I wouldn't say that there was shame, but there was certainly... Uh, not a lot of communication around sexuality. As I, I remember learning about sex and anatomy, you know, in junior school from a bunch of my friends who had like a dictionary with a naked man and woman. And it was like, what? How old do you think you were? I don't know, like probably around eight, seven or eight. And then from that point onwards, there wasn't really much said in my household, probably because of discomfort, either that or I just don't remember anything from when I was a kid. And then when I was in high school, my parents said, and I'm not faulting them because of their own perhaps uh, discomfort, maybe, or maybe once again, I don't remember, just don't come home with a kid. There wasn't really talk about uh, a lot of discussion about sex and sexuality. Sort of like my parents said, do not bring a dog home. Yeah, similar. Right? Just don't bring a human. Don't you dare bring a dog home. Yeah. That's the Chinese side, the Jamaican side, and my dad's side. He, he's not so comfortable with animals. But that's so broad to say don't come home with a child because there's no directive of how you might come home with a child or how, what you might do to prevent coming home with a child. Or some of the other things that you could bring home that aren't a child, but that are STIs. Right, STIs. or um, And of course, we don't want to create stigma around STIs, but I mean, if you can avoid them, most of us are trying to avoid them. I'd like to avoid them. Yeah. And also unhealthy relationships and, you know, feelings that are difficult to work through. All of those aren't really conversations that I, that our parents were having with us. I wasn't raised with shame around sexuality. Uh I certainly was raised with judgment around sexuality. So something a little bit different that can lead to shame and the idea of premarital sex, at least on one side of my body, my, my body, my family, at least on one side of my family was highly, highly judged. And I remember even in high school when I was thinking about having sex with my boyfriend and I had a condom in my drawer, I remember one of my friends yelling, tell me you're not a slut, tell me, tell me you're not a slut. And she was joking with the language, but it still made it really clear to me that I couldn't tell her that we were talking about sex and I wasn't going to tell her when we had sex. And that was my best friend. Meanwhile, for us gentlemen, it was the opposite, which was, yeah, rah, 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 you know, like it was like an accomplishment that you'd done it. Right. Very performative. Yeah. Performative sexuality for men, performative purity for women. Yeah. And then queer folks left out of the equation entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's interesting. So I want to talk about sexual shame and strategies to work through. And I don't even know if I can use the language overcome, but strategies to work through sexual shame across the lifespan. 
Joining us to discuss is Rosalia Rivera, a consent educator, a survivor turned thriver. You are the host of the About Consent podcast, a podcast for survivors and those who support survivors. You are also the founder of Consent Parenting, an online platform for adult childhood sexual abuse survivor parents to learn how to protect families from abuse and break intergenerational cycles. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you're passionate about consent education, and I've been reading your work, and you center sexual literacy as essential to overcoming trauma and relinquishing shame. So what does that mean? What is sexual literacy, and why is it so important? It's critical for two reasons, uh, specifically because I believe that when we talk about consent, we're talking about the rights to our body. And with that is also understanding that with the right to our bodies, we also have the right to pleasure. And sexuality is such a big part of our lives in the way that we are raised impacts how we perceive, you know, what our beliefs and values are around sexuality and, you know, the relationships that we have um, going forward in life. And I believe that if you know, specifically as survivors, if we do not do the work of empowering ourselves and dismantling the shame that we may experience from traumatic events like sexual abuse, then we carry that forward as parents into our own parenting. And, and those are the beliefs that we share with our kids. And that just continues that cycle of shame and uh, lack of understanding about our own sexuality. And we can't give our children a fulfilling life if that's not a part of it. So I think it, it's just all intertwined. And I think if we take the time to unpack what our values and beliefs were that we were given by both our parents and culture and educate ourselves, understand, uh, you know, what, how to unpack and dismantle that shame, um, we just keep putting it forward into the next generation. So I think it's important for us to have more uh, like, you know, to be able to thrive in our sexuality as persons who are survivors, but also as parents who are going to pass that on. And I believe that with when we teach about body rights, we have to teach about pleasure and we have to teach about the right to our pleasure so that we can break those cycles. What do you see as the costs of leaving pleasure out of the equation? A lot of suffering. You know, I as someone myself being a survivor, um, when I, I was date raped when I was 17 and I didn't tell anyone because I had a lot of shame. I believed it was my fault. And I carried that on late into my late twenties. Um, and I feel like I, I left so much, um, so such life on the table. Like, it, I don't know how else to explain mm -hmm. it other than to realize that, you know, there was so much that I, that I missed out on. And also, um, feeling that 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 shame is painful. Like it's just something that we uh, don't express, and then we end up choosing um, partners a lot of times that don't center our pleasure because we don't believe that we deserve it. And so we we end up um, in in relationships that are lacking a lot of different things, including support of our pleasure. So I think if we don't if we don't make that a priority in our lives to uh, learn about it and to educate ourselves on 
how to dismantle that shame, we just continue, we continue living, um, I think, a lackluster life, really. You know, you mentioned how you might choose relationships or fall into relationships where your pleasure isn't prioritized. Is it your experience that other needs are also not prioritized? This isn't just about sex and relationships, but also about the, you know, the relational dynamic. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it even starts with when we have shame, we don't believe that we deserve pleasure. We don't center our self-care. Mm. We don't center our self-pleasure even. Mm. Um, so I think that when we start from that place and we're always lacking that self-esteem to, you know, have better relationships because we just don't feel like we deserve them. It, it goes so deep, as I'm sure you know, that you know, if we don't love ourselves, we can't expect others to love us. And, and we unconsciously have that dynamic that, you know, people don't necessarily have to um, prioritize us. You know, we may prioritize others, but we don't deserve being prioritized. And so the relationship with ourselves suffers as well as with others. And so with your journey, how did you start to center and find and recognize your own pleasure and relinquish some of the shame associated with with trauma? For me, it was actually quite a funny story because, um, and it was not anything planned, but um, when I was in my uh, early 20s, I was bartending to pay for my university. And so I I ended up bartending in this really... um, big nightclub in New York City. And on Halloween, we were all told to, you know, have a costume on for bartending to make it more fun. And I lived in the city at the time on Christopher Street. If anyone knows Christopher Street, there are a lot of S&M shops that line the street. And uh, I didn't have a costume. So I thought, I'm just gonna go in and buy some, some gear and show up as a dominatrix. And that was a really pivotal moment in my life because I didn't realize that just by wearing that um, and and stepping into that sort of character, which ultimately became kind of an alter ego for me, um, I started realizing what it felt like to own my power and to uh, express it, you know, in, in a relationship and what that looked like. And I ended up learning a little bit, um, you know, kind of dabbling in S&M for a bit. But what it taught me was that I had the right to boundaries, that mm-hmm. I had the right to um, expressing sexuality as a, you know, sort of dominant female um, and feeling what that role was like without fully embodying it, but just kind of playing with it. And it, it ultimately did um, impact the way that I looked at relationships, the way that I understood boundaries and, and sort of the power dynamics in relationships. Um, So it was an interesting way to discover it, but it it ultimately led me to um, thinking about what boundaries really mean and how I needed those to be respected by others, especially having had those trauma experiences previously. And um, and then exploring where my belief systems came from. So it, it really was sort of that groundbreaking moment that led me to a lot of introspection and how I learned to express um, my needs and, and my, um, my boundaries, you know, ultimately. 
Now, you mentioned exploring your belief systems. I imagine for all of us, whether we've experienced trauma or we've simply been raised with messages around sexual shame, exploring our belief system is an important place to start. How do you, how do you navigate that? How do you recommend people start to look at our belief systems around sex and tear some of them down and lift other pieces up? Mm-hmm. I actually, when I educate parents, um, survivor parents, on how to teach their kids about uh, all the aspects of body safety, boundaries, and consent, we have to inevitably talk about sexuality. And so what I ask parents to do is to take some time to think about where their own belief systems around sex and sexuality came from. So try to dig back as far as you can. And I do a bit of a journaling exercise with them um, where it will take some days because, you know, this isn't something you're going to do in an hour. Um, it will take some time to really unearth, like, you know, did it start from your parents and what they told you or how they expressed their beliefs around sexuality? What did they say? How did they act? You know, what happened if, you know, an image um, that was sexual came on the screen? How did your parents respond? So, you know, starting from ground zero and then you know, layering, like unearthing the layers of beliefs, you know, that came from institutions, religion, um, you know, peers, anything that any kind of media that you came across. So really digging deep and writing those things down and starting to put those pieces together to determine, am I still okay with this belief system that was handed to me? Or do I want to, you know, do I want to have a different belief system and, and set of values that will be more supportive of my personal journey and how I want to educate my kids? So, you know, I always encourage people to really dig deep. Sometimes that's painful. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, when it comes to survivors, I always encourage that you go at your at the pace that works best for you. Sometimes you may need to put it down and come back to it, you know, but don't give up on it and, you know, take the time necessary to, to do that, that soul searching to an extent um, and determine, you know, where do I want to go from here? You, you make these recommendations uh, for parents. And I'm wondering for a survivor who gets into a relationship with a partner, do you, do you have recommendations for the partner who may not Hmm. who may not know how to navigate that when somebody feels comfortable disclosing to them, I am a survivor. How can the partner who hasn't experienced it help with, mm -hmm. you know, navigating this new, this new experience? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that is really important for um, partners, you know, spouses or partners is that, a lot of times when a survivor is disclosing, they're not asking for help necessarily, or they're not asking for a fix. They're asking just to be heard. And so I always recommend that they just ask them, what, what can I do for you regarding this information? Like, what would you like, how would you like me to hold space for you? Because a lot of times uh, survivors may not even know what it is that they're seeking. Maybe they do just want to be heard. Um, maybe they would like additional support in the way of, you know, having um, them being supported in, in guidance to get more help in terms of maybe a therapist or, um, you know, finding a group of survivors. A lot of times if they're talking about this for the first time, 
it's very scary. Um, they're not sure how it's going to be received. So being really compassionate about it and letting them know that you're willing to hold space and be supportive in whatever way they need that support to be. So asking a lot of questions about what they need so that they can provide that support. Um, and then for a survivor, a lot of times it may be that very first step to opening the doors and say, you know, I, I think it's time for me to talk about this um, because I want to start healing or I want to just let this out and not hold this feeling of shame anymore. And it's, you know, those very first steps um, can feel really scary and they're a little bit fragile. But I think if, um, if we as survivors ask for the things that we need, instead of just communicating, this is what happened to me, but this is what I need from this conversation or this disclosure, and I'm being clear about that, it will really help with those next steps after. And I imagine everyone's journey is very different. I imagine you know, some people might disclose to a partner and want to share many details and talk about their feelings, and others might just want to disclose, and they have other sources of support. Maybe they're working through it with a therapist, and they don't want to you know, hash it all out with a partner. So mm-hmm. that, that feels very useful to me, uh, what you said, which is to ask what they need. Don't assume that they want to talk a lot about it. Don't assume that they don't want to talk about it. And I imagine putting their needs first because you may have questions and you may, you know, be curious or concerned. But I imagine it really at at first, it's about putting the survivor's needs first as opposed to your own. Uh, Do you run into troubles with that? Because certainly the person to whom you're disclosing also has emotional needs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that it's important to say, you may want to also seek support about this. And there are, you know, there are excellent resources out there for that because it is a lot to take on if you're, first of all, not prepared for it, but also if that person is going to want you to support them, you know, seeking out your own support system for that is really helpful and powerful because then you can um, really step up to that with a lot more, Uh, a lot more resources and uh, understanding and compassion and really help both of, you know, both the relationship uh, potentially strengthen. um, But the communication can really be supportive for both partners. Yeah, it seems as though you have some very specific but flexible tools to support people. And I was I was looking at your website, Consent parenting.com and you have mini courses and master classes and support groups. Uh, I have a question about managing the belief systems to go back to that because you talked about journaling and you gave some really helpful prompts, you know, around what your parents said, how they acted, how did they act when there was an image or a scene on TV? What did you learn in school from your peers, from religion, from media? I mean, that just beginning with that mm-hmm. is, is a mm-hmm. lot for people to use even on their own right now. And, and then you brought us to the agent of change, which is, am I okay with this system or what parts mm-hmm. of this system I, am I okay with? And what do I want to do differently for myself and for my kids? And those, to me, those are big questions. Like that's a big zigzag in the road. So mm-hmm. how do you, how do you unpack that? Like what can people do to start thinking differently about a system that maybe has been with them for 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? How do yeah. you begin to dismantle that? Yeah, so a lot of it has to do with where you are in terms of um, 
what you connect with, you know. So if you are very religious, um, which tends to be where there could be a lot of conflict around sexuality because it's still in many um, religions considered something very taboo. You know, I, I've talked about in the past um, how the Madonna whore complex plays a big role in this and, and a lot of people aren't even aware of it, but how that can continue to guide you know, your belief system. So what I always recommend is to start doing some research and find uh, resources that feel good to you, that feel in alignment with where you would like to be. Hmm. If you look at your past and there are things that your parents said or that society said that does that doesn't feel right internally with you, you, you know, what is that sort of gut response that you get when you hear those things? That's, you know, your inner compass pointing you in the direction uh, of what is going to be good or bad for you personally. There are people that, you know, if I talk to them about the fact that I, you know, uh, toyed with S&M, that may put them off and they'll, they'll say, well, that's not any, you know, kind of uh, anything that I want to get close to. Um, and that's okay. You know, I think that everyone has a right to uh, believe in what they feel is right for them, as long as it's not hurting them or anyone else, right? So mm-hmm. if if it comes down to, you know, I think that what my parents taught me was correct, um, then that's fine, as long as it feels right internally. And so some people have grown up with really amazing sex positive parents and still had you know, sexual trauma and, and sort of reconciling those, those things, um, can be a little bit of a challenge, but it it really just comes down to, um, I think looking, doing some research, educating yourself, you may come across people who, um, you know, you really agree with what they're saying, but there are aspects that don't, and that's okay. Like we are such a rainbow internally of, you know, what we like and don't like. So it really just comes down to, um, you know, learning as much as you can, educating yourself. Uh, I know that for me, one of the resources that I always point parents to to learn more about sex positive parenting is uh, Melissa Carnegie from Sex Positive Families. The best. I think she's yeah. just like the best. Yes. I love her. I, I She was one of the first when I started uh, parenting, I was looking for resources that helped me understand, you know, how can I talk to kids about sexuality when I have my own hangups still? Mm-hmm. And that was how I started doing my own, you know, digging and like, where did my, you know, belief systems come from? My husband, for example, he grew up in a very sex positive home. Um, so there was a really big shift in how he's, you know, perceived sexuality and being able to talk to our kids about it. It's like no big deal at all. Whereas mm-hmm. for me, I grew up in a very sex negative home. And, you know, my, my parents, my mother specifically, couldn't even say the word vagina. It was like, you know, that the thing that's between your legs, like that's literally what she would say. Mm-hmm. And so it was really difficult for her to be able to talk about it. And almost like, um, almost like a, in, like a reaction that is without control, I almost had that same response of like not being able to say the you know the word penis and like how do I talk to my boys about this and um fortunately through educating myself and learning about you know how to talk to them and 
taking classes from Melissa. And like, there's so many great resources today versus, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago um, that we now have the ability to really step into owning our sexuality through educating ourselves, through doing that work of figuring out what we like, what we don't like, and then making those changes. And it's going to, you know, be a process. It's not going to happen right away. We may even, you know, screw up at times with our kids and, you know, it's okay to do that too, as long as we can still have those conversations and say, you know, I'm still learning about this. This isn't the way that I was raised and, you know, I'm, I'm doing the best that I can. So let's try to have that conversation again. I really appreciate that language, right? mm -hmm. You know, this is tough for me. You know, my mom or my dad or my parent didn't talk to me about this. So this is, this is the first time and you talk about uh, breaking generational trauma and intergenerational habits and, how, how do you do that besides admitting that this is tough for you and going back and looking at your belief systems and, you know, challenging yourself to, to take note of your inner compass? Uh, do you, you mentioned taking courses. I mean, I guess you've answered this, but am I missing anything for really managing generational trauma? I think it's important to get a support system. Mm. Um, so I have a I have a consent parenting one on one course, and the first week, the first module of that course is actually all about getting yourself mentally prepared mm-hmm. to step into this journey because it really will become a journey. Um, we have it's not like you know where we can say okay, we're going to teach you the ABCs. We have to, we're doing a lot of internal work when we're teaching about consent, which is something we were probably never taught about or Mm -hmm. to talk about boundaries when we've had our own boundaries ruptured. So it takes some inner work. And this is one of the reasons why I always say get support, get a support system in place. Sometimes that will be your partner talking openly and saying, you know, I, this is something I know I need to do. It's important for the family. And I need some support with this because for me, there are probably going to be some triggers. Um, and so, you know, lining up things like potentially starting to work with a therapist or um, starting to connect with other parents who are going through similar things. So if you know other survivor parents, um, you know, and, and you want to start working on this journey together so that you have someone to to talk to when you need to or bounce ideas off of or talk about concerns, a support system is really powerful. So whether it's a spouse, a therapist, or a group, I always recommend that you, uh, you know, kind of build that system before you take the leap. And also, um, in addition to that, is to find ways to self-regulate. Because as I mentioned, for survivor parents especially, this can be a really triggering journey at times. Not to scare anyone because it's totally doable, but you will come across some things that are going to cause maybe a little bit of anxiety and you may be apprehensive to teach certain things to your kids. But especially the piece about sexuality and, you know, even for parents, sometimes talking about um, body parts, you know, private parts, genitalia, and using medically accurate terms can be triggering. And if they shy away from doing it, then they can potentially be, you know, teaching their children that those parts of their bodies are shameful. And so this is why it's so important to do that work internally of, you know, dismantling that shame, um, even before or during the process of teaching your kids about abuse prevention and all those things. So getting the support in place is really helpful. I like that you're highlighting pleasure, because I think we have to ask ourselves why 
we wouldn't be deserving of pleasure, right? Why our bodies don't deserve to, to feel good, to, you know, explore their capacity. So I love that you're centering pleasure. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I know that folks can check you out online at aboutconsent.com as well as your podcast and encourage people to listen. You have um, some really interesting podcasts on PTSD. Uh, You have some interesting podcasts on everything from why sleep matters in the recovery process to um, all these pieces around breaking intergenerational trauma. So thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I, I loved being here. This is such an important conversation, and I feel that there are so many tools in here, even just beginning with writing down the sources of your belief systems from parents, what they said, what they did, uh, how they acted when a song came on that was sexual, how they acted when a scene played out on TV, what did they say, did they change the channel, did they make judgmental comments, you know, what did you learn at school, in the classroom and in the schoolyard, what did you learn from religion, what did you learn from media, even if we could just begin with those, I don't know, eight to ten questions and jot down our answers, that's just the start. And another piece that really resonated with me is the notion of the inner compass and feeling something inside that doesn't sit right with you, but oftentimes we ignore it. And I think I spent my whole life ignoring it because I was trying to fit in. So growing up, I knew I didn't fit in. I knew I was mixed race. I knew that um, I didn't fit in because of, I think partly because of my gender, which you and I, we haven't really talked about here at some point we should, but um, the roles I play as, you know, as a woman. And, and because of sexuality. And so I always felt uncomfortable with things, with social norms, with jokes, with things people would say. But I kind of, I think, chose to join them because I couldn't beat them or because I couldn't be myself. And my point is, I never had the language to describe what I was experiencing. And so I just ignored it, right? I tried to go on with dominant norms and fit in instead of I mean, it's not like I tried to fit in to, to be cool or anything like that. But rather than acknowledging my inner compass, I just ignored it. And for me, it's about language. Now I have the language to describe the things I was struggling with around entitlement, around privilege related to race, related to gender, related to income. And now I have that language, but that language wasn't around 20 years ago. And so when uh, Rosalia talks about paying attention to your inner compass and finding resources to support you. For me, resources are are those that give me the language. And for other people, it might not be about language. It might be other forms of expression, but I'm a very verbal person and I like words. Uh, And so that really just resonated with me. Yeah. I mean, I wish that I had had somebody explain the inner compass because I feel like it would have, and then also the tools because it would have given me the opportunity to ask some questions and then those questions result in other questions. And then Do you mean you when learn, you were younger? Yeah, when I was younger, I'm sorry, like 25 years ago, uh, which I just didn't have then. And we also didn't discuss, like it wasn't something that was brought up, whether within my friend's circle or even at home. And then the other piece we didn't get to explore that I'd like to explore in the future is the Madonna-Whore dichotomy. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but this basically means dividing women into two groups, polarized perceptions of women as either good virgins or bad whores, right? So we are one or the other. There's kind of no gradient and labeling women, which I'm sure you saw growing up. Yeah, definitely. Uh, as 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 a kid, as a teenager, 
when I would hang out with my friends at hockey, there were women who were girlfriend material. And then there were women that were deemed like just somebody that you'd fool around with and didn't, again, didn't really have the language or the, what was it? The, the, the sexual intelligence (laughs) to really dive in and understand why I felt that way or even question it. And over the years, as a result of a desire to learn and being around different people with different opinions who I was willing to listen to, things have changed. Do you think that being around more queer folks has had a big impact because maybe we're not as married to those gendered expectations? Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with that statement and also just opening up your eyes to different attitudes and beliefs and opinions and if you're open and willing to listen and ex- or try to experience them then it really changes your outlook or my outlook. And th- this Madonna whore dichotomy is so important because it is rooted in and continues to uphold patriarchy. So there's this research around how folks who believe in the Madonna whore dichotomy also have a preference for hierarchical social structures rooted in gender. So they want to maintain the existing gender system binary, um, especially with, you know, men playing certain roles and women playing other roles. They are more likely to, to hold sexist attitudes that are both benevolent and hostile. So a hostile is obviously like um, women suck and you're stupid. And then benevolent might be like, oh, but it's just that women are better at this, so I shouldn't have to do it. And similarly for men, because sexism costs all genders. It's not just women who lose. Um, and folks who subscribe to the Madonna whore dichotomy also are more likely to objectify women, hold sexual double standards, and you know try and be dominant based on gender. So it's something we need to talk about a little bit more. And again, it's one of those things where so many of us have sat in a meeting or been in a group or sat at a bar and heard things tossed around flippantly. And we feel something that doesn't feel right. So we change the subject or we laugh it off. And that is our inner compass speaking to us. Or you say nothing. Of course. Just sit there and accept it, even though it hurts inside Mm -hmm. and you don't know why. Right. Or you do know why. Yeah. Well, and I think we don't bother to think about it because it's almost easier to just go with the conversation and order another drink or have another conversation or turn to the person to your right and chat about something different because you don't always have the spoons, the energy to argue about these things. So I think I think it's a for that for me, I took a lot out of this conversation, but the inner compass in particular is a great reminder to pay more attention to it for me and, and break down some of these belief systems. So really important conversation. Thank you so much to Rosalie Rivera, to you, Brandon, and to you for listening, folks. Before I let you go, if you are shopping from home looking for something that buzzes or sucks in a good way or feels like it's licking, check out wevibe.com and please use code Dr. Jess. You'll save a few dollars and I'll get credit as well. So again, that's wevibe.com and the promo code is Dr. Jess. And you can also use that on womanizer.com if you're into that stuff as well. I think we talked about Womanizer on a recent episode, really cool products. So folks, wherever you're at, have a great one. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life. Thank you.